nutrition, gut health, mental health, hormones, and so much more. These all play roles in sustainable weight management. So, I scour the globe for top experts in fitness, health, and weight loss to bring to you this podcast. So take a seat and enjoy the ride. So welcome to another episode of the Zika Health Show. This is weight management expert, Narado Zico Powell. And boy, do I have a blockbuster interview for you today. I have Mr. Jonathan Wolf, host of the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast and founder of the world's largest, largest nutrition research program, Zoe. Not the second, not the third, largest. This man has a wealth of knowledge that he's going to share with us. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about things like the importance of understanding our unique metabolism factors that influence dietary inflammation. And we know in this show, we talk about gut health, reducing inflammation, gut enzymes, our unique metabolism. We're going to dive deep into this, these topics in this episode. We're also going to talk about dietary approaches to combat non-communicable diseases and so much more. So get your healthy drink, take a seat and get ready for this episode because this is going to be next level. And with that being said, let's welcome Jonathan Wolf to the show. Hey, Jonathan, how are you? I'm good, Narada. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on my show. This, my audience is really going to benefit from your work. Thank you so much for being here. Let's go. Let's get it started. So with that being said, tell us about your work. Tell us about yourself. Absolutely. So uh, I guess I'm wearing two hats now. So as you just mentioned, uh, one of my hats is I'm host of uh, the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast. Uh, and that itself comes out of Zoe where I'm, uh, I'm the founder of Zoe. We started this five years ago. Uh, Zoe is now running the largest nutrition science study in the world, and we're using that to understand personalized nutrition. Uh, and what we've discovered is that this idea that there's a sort of one-size-fits-all diet for all of us is just wrong, and the science doesn't support that, uh, and that if we can understand the right diet for you, so the exact right foods for your body, today, then actually that can have a really profound impact on your long-term health. It can have a profound impact on your energy and it can have a profound impact on your weight. Uh, and so what Zoe does uh, is now it takes all of this information we've learned from these, um, uh, from these research studies and allows you to do at home a test, which measures your own metabolism. We compare that with tens of thousands of people who've participated in these studies. And then we use uh, artificial intelligence to be able to create this personalized uh, plan for you. Uh, and then a program that's supported by coaches to help you to make those changes in your diet, because we all know that sort of making those changes and sticking with them is just as hard as knowing what you, sh you should eat, right, Nerado? Um, and then support you towards your goal. Wow, that's absolutely fantastic. And I like the fact that you start off by saying that this one size fits all doesn't work. It wasn't working before. It's not like it was working. And then all of a sudden we realized, oh, it's not working. It wasn't working before. There's just more light being shed on the fact that it was not working. Right. And it still doesn't work. I, my body is way more complex than, out, than a little bit of um, arithmetic, you know, calories in versus calories out. My body is just way more complex than that. It doesn't take into consideration many things like inflammation, oxidative stress, gut enzymes, the complexity of digestion, so many things. That's why these don't work. And that's why one of the reasons why many individuals will cut their calories and gain weight. And they're like, I don't understand. I worked out, I burned 2000 calories. I ate a thousand, but somehow I'm still gaining weight because it's not personalized. And working with a, with a professional and an expert that Jonathan Wolf and his team who understands personalized human nutrition is a game changer for you. Thank you for that. And I think that's right, right? Like we've all heard over and over again, this idea that 
food is just as simple as like putting gas into your car, right? So it's just how much you put in, that's how many calories, how much you burn, and that explains everything. And then, you know, the problem is everybody tries these calorie restriction diets and they have two problems, right? First is they're almost impossible to stick with for a long time, right? Because your body is fighting so hard against hunger, right? We're evolved to say, well, look, if we've not got enough food, we're going to, we've we've got to go and get more food, right? So it's going to drive this massive hunger because after all, you know, if you think about where we evolved, it's like, if you got really hungry, there wasn't like Starbucks just down the road, right? When we grew, we were in the Savannah (laughs) half a million years ago. (laughs) So if you're really hungry, it's like, wow, you know what? The only thing you need to think about is food. Right. That makes sense. But that means when we're trying to starve ourselves, like all that evolution is fine against you. But the second part is that our body adjusts massively. So if you go into calorie restriction, there's this idea that your metabolism stays the same. It's completely false. And all the science now shows this. So basically, you move into this sort of famine state, right? You reduce your metabolism. You do all sorts of things that can have very bad long term uh, effect if you're in this sort of prolonged um, calorie deficit. Um, And actually what happens, right, is you stop losing weight. So we all know, like, you can lose weight to start with, but then actually it all um, it plateaus. And then what's really bad is you get the, the rebound weight gain, right? And so what happens is then once you stop this calorie uh, deficit, you can be in the terrible position where you tried really hard to do what you were told, and it's just calories in against calories out. And then 12 months later, you're actually heavier than you were to start. And it's not because you did anything wrong. It's because basically you've been fighting against everything in, in your body that basically says that's that's not a way to get into a healthier place. And that's not a way in order to, to, to lose weight for most people. Exactly. In addition, you have altered your, your gut environment and your gut enzymes as well, because you've been on such a restrictive, restrictive diet for so long. There are enzymes in your body. Of course, you know, uh, Mr. Wolf, there are enzymes that break down carbs or enzymes that for, to break down fats and proteins, so on and so forth. By restricting yourself too much, exp- especially if you're adding restricting carbs on top of that, you are really altering the, your gut environment so badly, which is what causes the weight gain when you quote unquote, eat normal again. Instead I, I think of- that's exactly right. I think that if you think about it, like the opposite of thinking about calories in and calories out is thinking about quality of your food. And the idea is, you know, if you eat the right food for your body, then actually your body's going to work properly. And if your body works properly, you know what? You're not, you're going to reduce that inflammation. You're going to have all that amazing support from all of that gut bacteria, which we now know is so important for you. Um, by reducing inflammation, you can actually be in a point where not only do you feel more energy and you're feeling better and you're improving this long-term health, but actually what we're seeing with our, with our studies, which is really amazing, is we see this knock-on effect of people losing weight, even where there is no calorie restriction at all. So basically, you know, it sounds sort of crazy, right? Because we've been told for the last, you know, 100 years that it's all about calories in against calories out. But actually, if you shift towards eating right for your body, it's amazing. Your body starts to say, you know what? I've had enough of this good stuff. Um, I'm supporting myself. I'm I'm managing it well. Um, and um, so it's sort of the reverse, I think, of all the, of the negative things you're talking about, which is you're quite right, right? If you really reduce your calories, then something like, oh, well, you know, you can't eat all of those foods, which have got lots of fiber in because, you know, maybe they've got uh, too many carbs or, you know, you can't have any olive oil because that's got like loads of calories in, but we know it's one of the best things. Uh, you know, there's actually randomized controlled trials showing this. So sort of pushing you in all the bad places where, you know, if, if basically what you're eating is like incredibly processed, low calorie food, which looks nothing like natural food. And then that's the only thing you can do, right? If you're eating a very calorie controlled diet, and we now know that it completely changes your microbiome, that there's lots of knock-on effects um, uh, elsewhere in your metabolism. And so basically just pushing you in exactly the opposite direction um, that you need to go. And I think this has been a sort of a journey of discovery for me over the last five years, as I've been lucky enough to work with you know, many of the top uh, scientists across sort of nutrition and, and microbiome, which has got bacteria, all these sorts of things. And, and this just comes in over and over again, that in, in leading research, Nothing I'm saying is that radical, right? This is like well-known. And if you talk to, you know, top nutritional scientists, again, nothing I'm saying is really that radical, but there's still a big disconnect today between, you know, I think what's really understood, you know, in the cutting edge of science and just the normal conversations that we're having. And even frankly, you know, a lot of government advice, which is still a long way behind this latest um, view. And I, you know, I'd love to discuss that a bit more because it's pretty terrible, right? Like, you, we should all be getting like what the advice is now, not what people thought 30 years ago. 
are not what they lobbied and paid for, but that's another conversation. Well, we, can, in we, can, we can we can touch on that as well because you're quite right, and you know, and I think particularly, um, you know, particularly in places like the the states or the UK, where maybe you know these sorts of commercial lobbies have very strong position, you do see that's very different than maybe in other countries where perhaps they don't have the same um, power. And it's interesting that the nutritional advice, uh, you know, is is different. Exactly. And, you know, was it Dave Asprey, I believe, uh, I want to say his book, and he talked about uh, lobbyists and how it impacts, uh, impacts the government. I believe it's him. If it's not him, it's someone else. But I read, I read a book, it was a couple of years ago, and it detailed how lobbyists impact our government and the advice that we are given. And it's, it's, it's a shame. It really opens up your thought to see what's actually happening behind the scenes. So a lot of the things that we think, oh, the government is telling us we need to eat all these sugars and all these carbs. Oh, that must be healthy. Well, here comes type two diabetes. Here comes poor gut health. Now the obesity rate in the United States is over 42%. That's obesity. That's not just overweight, right? Overweight is a higher percentage. Then here comes all these other health issues, right? That goes along with that. So now moves from big foods to big pharma, because now they're on medication and now the, 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 our doctors are pushing these medications and it's really a cycle. It's absolutely dreadful. I'm not sure of the condition in England if you want to uh, maybe uh, discuss that a little bit. I think look, this is a global problem, right? And um, uh, you know, the, the reality is it's not even just a rich country problem anymore either. Like you see this in many developing countries as well. So the level of obesity um, is a huge problem. And I think what has really come out of our research is just that the food is central to this, right? There's been this story also that everything to do with obesity is like willpower. If only people had more willpower, then they would all be fine, right? And so it's not your fault that if you drink these like uh, sugary, uh, sorry, it's your fault, right? That these sugary drinks um, mean you put on weight. Uh, it's got nothing to do with the fact that actually, and we've seen this actually in one of our um, papers that was published in Nature Metabolism last year, um, for many people, but not all, when you drink these um, drinks that are high in sugar, you see a big um, blood sugar uh, crash at sort of two to three hours later, that makes you hungry. What happens then is you eat more. And what we saw is for those people who have those responses, they end up eating hundreds of calories more a day. And they're drinking these sugary drinks because they feel like, oh, I need some energy, right? Like I'm, I'm being told not to you know, go for too long with that. I need this energy, but actually it's having the reverse impact, right? It's actually making them hungrier and they're actually going on to eat more food. And that's not true of other foods right? Like this is a specific property of certain foods for, for certain people. What is um, true though, is that in general sort of high sugar drinks are one of the examples of foods where you see this most commonly and where, you know, again, the manufacturers of these say, oh, again, it's not our problem. This is great. It's just people with lack of willpower. And I think the science is really showing that's not true. And the anecdotal evidence as well, just like you said, when you, when you drink sodas, and you feel that crash later on, that's a sign. You're not right. supposed to feel that, that spike in your blood sugar raises your insulin levels, and then you feel that crash later on. But that's a sign. Lack of fiber, good things that your body needs. And apple is not even the same as, not even, even not even sodas, let's say juice. And apple is not the same as apple juice. And orange is not the same as orange juice. There's no fiber there or very minimal fiber there, right? Plus, a lot of them have added sugars. And even if you don't have the added sugars, again, there's lack of fiber there. So thank you so much. That's a fantastic share. And this is going to take us into the next question that we've already talked about a lot already. But why is it important for us to really understand our unique metabolism? It's, it's a great question. And so, uh, you know, I think um, you know, if, if you go to your doctor in general, they're trying hard enough just to give a sort of generic answer for everybody, right? Like, and that, that, that's where they're at. Um, and the answer is because, because you're unique, right? And so it's the same thing as when you go into a shoe shop, right? Like just being given a size seven shoes, like it works for like one in 10 people and everybody else, the shoes are too big or the shoes are too small, right? And so the answer is on average, you might, we might all be a size seven, but it's not very helpful, right? If like, if, if, I, if I'm a size nine, 
I've got a real problem if I get in size seven shoes. Um, and just as that's true for shoes, I think what's really remarkable is this is true for food. Um, and the reason why this is true for food uh, comes back to, uh, particularly to the gut bacteria that you've uh, already touched on, Narado. So um, one of the things, um, Zoe actually originally started in research carried out by my co-founder, uh, Professor Tim Spector. Uh, and Tim is an amazing scientist. Uh, he's actually one of the top 100 most cited scientists in the world, which is which is pretty cool. And uh, he set up something called the uh, UK Twins Study 30 years ago. So he's been following 12,000 twins for 30 years. Uh, and what he discovered, which was really unexpected, is that identical twins are quite different. They're not, in fact, as identical. And the answer is they look identical on the outside and on the inside, they can be quite different. And so, for example, you can have two identical twins. One of them might get breast cancer. The other doesn't. One of them might end up getting obese and the other doesn't. And they have exactly the same genes and they have exactly the same upbringing for the first 18 years because they're growing up in the same household. Uh, so how is it that they're different? And Tim spent basically 10 years investigating this. And what he found, which may not be a surprise to your listeners, um, is that they all have completely different bacteria in their gut. Uh, and they're also eating different food. And so as a result, what this means is that they end up responding to food in a very different way. And he ended up doing um, sort of the last piece of research just before we sort of started with Zoe was feeding these identical pairs of twins the same food. And what we saw is in the hours after you eat that food, completely different responses between even these identical twins. And so why am I saying that? What that means is like you and I aren't identical twins. And so if even identical twins are different, like imagine how different we are. And indeed, we then went on and carried out something called the Zoe Predict study, which, as you've also mentioned, is the largest um, nutritional science study in depth in, in the world and the first of our series of studies. And what we saw is that everybody's responses to food are incredibly different. And you see that in the way that their blood sugar response to food, in the way that their blood fat response to food, in the way their inflammation response to food. And so therefore, like the idea we should all eat exactly the same thing, right? It doesn't make any sense. Because if your body is responding differently, you want to eat the food that's best for you. And the thing that's driving that, it turns out, which was sort of the, the follow-on thing we did is we all have these completely different bacteria inside us. Uh, and it turns out, you know, that there are more bacteria in our gut than cells in our body. They have this incredible amount of genetic material, like about 100 times more than we have as, as, uh, as a human being, and it's completely different. And so they are the thing that's really responding to this food. And if you can feed them the right things, then they produce all of these great chemicals that cross the gut wall, go into all the cells in your body, and really support your metabolism, can support your health in many ways. On the other hand, if you're eating the wrong food, right, and some of the wrong food we already know, right, because there's some wrong food that's just, you know, bad for everybody, let's, let's be honest, like... It actually feeds, you know, the bad microbes. And, and one of the things that Zoe was able to do for the first time is actually identify like a set of good and bad bacteria that are related both to long-term health and related to, to these um, good and bad foods. And so what you can see is, you know, if you're eating good food, you can start to support the good bugs inside you. You know, if you're mainly eating the food that's not good, you're actually basically feeding these bugs. That, you know, there are bugs that love McDonald's, right? We can definitely see that. Um, they produce a whole set of chemicals. In general, those are not as good, and they tend to lead to more inflammation. And so what you see is that, therefore, if we can start to understand the right food for you, we can actually support your gut, right? We can improve your gut health, and we can really have an impact on your long-term health. Um, and so that is, I think, you know, you know, why personalized nutrition really comes down to the fact that we're sort of living with all of these passengers, right? And I never knew this when I grew up, right? No one ever talked to me about, about this. And that's because it's really only in the last 20 years that people realize how important these, um, these gut bacteria are. Once you start to think about that, you're like, well, if everything inside me is unique, right? It's completely different from other people. How do I understand what's inside me? And how do I start to eat you know, for myself uh, in the right way? And I can really have all of these great outcomes. Wow, that's you just gave me a lot to unpack there because that was a fantastic, fantastic take. But I want to touch on a couple of things. There's a study that was published, I want to say two, three years ago. I'm not exactly sure when, but they took a set of twins. You might be familiar with it. And uh, one had uh, one was obese and one was regular weight, right? And they took the bacteria from the, and it has germ free mice. And they took the bacteria from the obese twin, put in one germ-free mice, and then the lean twin put in all the germ-free mice, right? And as is predicted, the bacteria from the obese twin made the mice obese, and from the lean twin made the mice obese. 
that's when scientists started to realize, or one of the scientists started to say, oh, okay, I see a connection of your gut environment and obesity, right? So amazing, right? Right. So don't, don't, don't just think, oh, we're just talking. This is a real stuff that scientists finally starting to catch up on that our government is still not telling us, but the top scientists in the world are learning this now. That's why when we talk about probiotics, that's very important. Prebiotic fiber to feed your probiotics is important. And something else we don't talk about much is postbiotics, which is what's created by the pre by um, your probiotics after they're fed properly, which is vital. And when I say postbiotics, you can actually buy some. I recommend that you don't. It's very unstable and it may not be what you need. Get some good prebiotic fiber, feed your and also feed your good bacteria so they create those postbiotics that your body actually needs. Not something you have to buy extra is just by doing exactly what you said, Jonathan, feeding your good bacteria and not the one that like McDonald's and KFC. In addition, I just want to add to that too, Jonathan, before you continue. You ever th- most people should realize that once you make a dietary change and everybody I've talked to, uh, most people can relate to this. After a while, you stop craving the things that you didn't, that you used to crave. Because your gut environment is different. That, that's exactly right. I was actually talking to um, uh, one of the leading microbiome scientists on on my podcast on on Zoe Science and Nutrition recently, and was talking about the way that the bacteria themselves might influence some of your cravings. So this is not yet proven. This is still like hypothesis that they're um, they're working through. But actually, there's some suggestion that one of the ways that your bacteria might even influence your brain is to sort of affect what you like. Because if you think about it, right, these bacteria have different uh, foods they like. It's almost like inside you. It's like all, think about like a coral reef, right? We've all seen it on TV and there are all these different fish, right? And they all eat particular things and they all interact with each other. So it's a whole ecosystem, right? It's not just one thing. And that's what's going on inside your gut. There's not like one or two microbes. Normally there's like 100, 150 different species and then trends and they, and they interact with each other and they have particular types of food that they particularly like. Um, and so there's a suggestion that they might even be able to influence in some way what we like. So if you can make that shift and stick with it, just as you're uh, suggesting, Nerado, then actually you start to have these better microbes and you can start to lose some of these cravings as you stick with it, because some of that may actually be coming sort of from your passengers, uh, right? It's not even just coming from uh, from you. So I think this is not proven. I think what is proven, as you said, is if you can stick with a change, then actually you can start to um, appreciate it. And we definitely see that with people. You know, one of the things that we see with a lot of people when they do these tests um, is that uh, they have very poor blood sugar control, right? And we see this with a lot of people. And this is not um, people who have already been diagnosed with diabetes. This is much earlier. Uh, and we do these dynamic tests to understand that. Um, and often they're eating uh, very highly processed uh, diets because everybody's eating very highly processed diet, right? Like that is the environment that's around us. Um, and so shifting towards the foods that are right for them, um, you know, it can be a shock on week one. But actually what we see is, you know, if you can stick with that and the right food for you, um, we have um, clinical trial evidence now that uh, more than 80% of people after three months feel much more energy, right? So basically you see that change, you feel it, and it becomes easy to stick with. And the challenge is like, how do you, you know, how do you make the start of that, of that change, which I think is something that, that you know a lot about personally. It's definitely, definitely. And I'm not going to go over my entire story, but my listeners know my story and my journey and uh, what my clients have experienced as well. But you said something key that I want to highlight. You said foods that are good for you, right? That's, that's very important. It's for you. That's why it's important to understand your unique metabolism. That's why it's, it's important to understand what foods can cause inflammation. That's why it's important to understand your gut environment and your gut enzymes. And that's why it's important to work with an expert like Jonathan Wolf and his team, because you need to know what works best for you, even a car. Okay. Let's say we've got gasoline in the car. Not all cars carry it, use the same gasoline. Some cars dif- require different type of maintenance than other cars, right? If you're a high-end car, you're low-end, even if they're all the same, and like I said, Hondas versus Toyotas, they require different care. They all require different care. And we are way more unique than a car. So imagine how much different our care needs to be in a perfect world. That wouldn't be the case. We all just eat, live happy, 
don't have to worry about fast food. We just, everything is great. But in today's society, where we spend so many years, decades, ruining our diets, we need to turn around and make those adjustments. And again, that's why it's important to understand what you actually need. Now, I think that's right. I think the thing I'd add is um, people change over time. And we see this is really interesting. We've got a, a new paper that's going to be coming out um, very shortly on, on menopause. In fact, by the time uh, this airs, it, it might well be out. And um, we've got increasingly fascinated around menopause because what we see is this amazing change in a woman's body through this period. And so, you know, I think people say anecdotally often, you know what, I feel like my body's just completely changed. Like I'm eating the same way as I did before and it always worked for me and now it doesn't. And in general, I think that hasn't been taken very seriously. Well, you know what? <laughs> they were all right. And if you look at the science, what we see is this profound shift that's going on, um, not just sort of in the 12 months around menopause, but sort of through through perimenopause and, and a few years either side, where in general, you see big shifts in, um, in a woman's metabolism. And for most of them, what you see is that their ability to deal with um, sort of both uh, glucose, so that's blood sugar, and their ability to deal with um, blood fats, so lipids, uh, decreases. And so often what's happening is they were having, you know, they're eating the same way that they might have been eating in their 20s and 30s and having no problem because there was no inflammation afterwards. They're eating exactly the same meal now when they're, I don't know, in their late 40s or going into their early 50s. And actually their body is responding completely differently. It can't deal with this. And we can talk a little bit more about how that sort of whole um, uh, inflammatory process happens after food, if that's interesting. Um, and as a result, this inflammation is going up and it's leading to, uh, you know, a host of effects one of which is absolutely weight gain one is something that's impacting their energy and so this is then layered on top of all these other symptoms that are just coming through through menopause anyway and i think that's you know it's a great example but you also see we also see from men like the reality is when you do these tests you know if you test somebody who's 21 like most men when they're 21 they're in pretty good shape they can eat a lot of food and get away with it right like we see that you can eat some of that, you know, highly processed uh, food. And actually, you know what? Their blood sugar response is okay. Their blood fat's okay. Their microbiome is probably already not looking very good, right? Their gut health is probably not already, is already not looking so good, but you could sort of get away with it, right? Like, and then you go and look at like the average 30-year-old and 40-year-old and 50-year-old, and what you see is this is really um, changing. And so I think one of the key, uh, like, uh, you know, amazing insights for me, right? I've done these tests myself is actually, you know, <laughs> I was in a lot worse shape than I had realized. And that's because, you know, I'm not 21 anymore. Oh, you would have fooled me. You would have fooled oh, me, Jonathan. <laughs> uh, you can tell it's only a podcast. That's why you can say that. <laughs> it's not video. It's not video. <laughs> but uh, okay, but uh, let's talk about dietary information a little bit then. So what exactly is dietary information and how do we trigger it? Uh, it's a it's a really interesting question. So um, uh, we work with a a number of scientists who are basically um, world leaders in um, this space of what's called postprandial met metabolism. Uh, and so, uh, what does that mean? So postprandial is like fancy word for after eating, right? Um, and metabolism is basically what you know everything that's going on in your body as it's like actively dealing with um, the food that's coming in, turning that into energy and making sure that we deliver that in order to like carry out everything we're doing from walking around to, to talking. And so what it turns out, which is um, sort of obvious, but uh, I think most of <laughs> I'd never thought about it before uh, being involved in Zoe five years ago is we're actually in this sort of postprandial state, right? This after eating state for most of our life, right? So, and that's because it takes our body a long time to deal with food. So, you know, many of us know a bit more about blood sugar. We've heard about that more. People talk about that. And we know that you get these, you can get these spikes and these crashes. Uh, and we know that that lasts for a few hours after we're eating. But there's two forms of energy that really power us, right? One is blood sugar, but the other is blood fat. And they are both critical um, uh, systems for us. And what's interesting about blood fat is we also have these big rises in blood fat after you eat and decline, but it takes much longer. So generally it may take you like six, 
seven, eight hours to clear this away. And so if you think for most of us, you know, if we're not doing some sort of intermittent fasting, we're probably having breakfast, lunch and dinner. You know, there'll be a bunch of people on this call who are like me, who also snack at least twice uh, through this period as well. So you think about your eating a lot and then you've got that long period afterwards. Well, suddenly now you might only have six hours, right, before you wake up when you're really not in this sort of postprandial state. Uh, and so then you start to think about when you go to the, the physician, right, and he takes your blood, often he's like, oh, make sure you fast, right? I want to get like the fasting measure. And there's good reasons why he does that. But actually, that's because for like 18 hours of the day, those results will look completely different. Because for 18 hours of the day, those results are what happens after you're eating, right? So what's happening to your blood sugar? What's happening to your blood fat? What's happening to your inflammation, right? All of that can be completely different. Um, and the food that we eat is really this central um, uh, effect on us because we're meant to eat, right? Like we have to eat. It's completely normal. And these rises I'm talking about after you eat with like blood sugar, or blood fat are also completely normal. There is no way to get, you know, the blood sugar to your brain or to your legs without putting it, you know, into your blood and sending it around. And when you eat, so there's going to be a spike. There's nothing wrong with having a spike. And it's really important for your listeners to know, right? Sometimes people, um, you know, can make that sound really terrible. It's okay to have a rise in your blood sugar or your blood fat. The question is, can your body cope with it? And so if you can cope with it, what that means is it goes up a bit and then it starts to come down nicely and you don't see it get really, really high. You don't see it stay really high. You also don't see it sort of crash and go too low. Um, and generally, again, if you think about, you know, what would happen if you were running these tests on somebody who's 21, most of the time it all looks very good. Right? It goes up a bit, it comes down, there's no problem. Your body can cope with it. And, you know, scientists talk about this as like there are metabolic pathways for you to be able to take this and make sure that you can store it away, you can convert it. That all sounds great. Your microbiome, your gut bacteria is very important in how well this whole metabolism is working for you. The problem is what happens if you keep stressing your body, right? Let's say you keep drinking those sugary drinks or you keep eating those like really low, large amounts of sort of low quality fat. You're stressing your body, you're stressing your body, you're stressing your body. Your body um, struggles to deal with this, particularly if, you know, if it's, it's been doing this for a long time. And that's when you start to get this dietary inflammation. And dietary inflammation is basically a whole set of negative effects that happen to you if you can't deal with that spike. So let me just give you an example about what happens with blood fat um, and how that can end up leading to, you know, cardiovascular problems, strokes, heart disease, as well as weight gain. So what happens is, you know, it's normal, right? After I eat uh, a meal with fat in it, and, you know, let's say it doesn't matter what it is, right? Nuts or oil or French fries, like cheese, you know, whatever it is, um, it's normal to have the fat go into your blood. But if you can't deal with it and you can't go and like pack it away, then what happens after about six hours is you start to have a lot of negative effects and your body starts to react against it. And it's basically saying, I'm going to start to have to lead to inflammation because actually I'm basically starting to say, hey, this is like a bad thing that's going on. And so you can start to have things like over time leading to furring in your arteries Nobody wants their arteries to reduce in size, right? Um, that is what can start to lead to um, cardiovascular problems. And interestingly, that inflammation, you start to have this background inflammation, also seems to lead to uh, a negative impact on your gut bacteria. So they are shifting and a negative impact on, uh, on your weight. And so what you want to do, I think, you know, one of the central things, uh, you know, to take away from this is how do you think about what you're eating in a way that your body can cope with it? And that doesn't mean you can't eat any food. It doesn't mean you should only be on a ketogenic diet or that you should only eat no fat. It's about understanding your own body and understanding what's the right way to balance it. Maybe to make that like, you know, about me, like I, I've done these tests um, and I discovered that my blood sugar control was really poor, which was very surprising because I'm, um, uh, I'm not overweight. Uh, my blood fat control was actually really good which was really interesting. And my microbiome was really disappointingly bad. Uh, and so I have my own personalized um, uh, guidance. But, you know, at a very simple level, what that means is that I actually needed to be eating a lot more fat within my diet than I had been. And I had been eating, um, you know, way too much sort of like highly processed carbohydrates. Um, and I was like, I could get away with it, Narada. I was like, I think I'm fine. I'm not putting on weight. But actually all of this bad stuff was happening inside me. Wow. That's absolutely fantastic. And thank you so much for that share. And that leads me into uh, a follow-up question then, because a lot of times we talk about 
blood sugar, but we didn't talk about blood blood fats, right? Which is a very is a very important is a key part of what we're missing when we're looking at the unique metabolism. So I wasn't planning to ask this question, but I'm curious about your thoughts. If it if it doesn't work out, we can always edit it out of the podcast. Right? <laughs> no problem, no problem. <laughs> so what does um, gut enzymes like um, lipase, for example, play in our response to breaking down blood fats? So um, I mean, I think the first thing to 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 say, and I and because I'm lucky enough to spend a lot of time with these different scientists, is in all areas of nutritional science, our understanding is still early. And I think sometimes you can uh, get the sense that, hey, the scientists know all the answers and it's all out there. And you can listen to these different podcasts with all these people who sound really smart and tell you all the answers. Um, I think the really important thing actually to say is our understanding of the human body in general and about nutrition in particular is really poor. Uh, and it's really important to handle, and I am going to answer this, this question, but I think it's really important to understand that in almost all areas, we're still very early in discovering this. And that is because um, you know, the amount of money that is being spent on nutrition research is tiny in comparison to the sort of money that's been spent on cancer research or you know, AIDS research or many other areas. Um, and so most of the things that you read, right, in the newspaper or on social media, whatever, that says, uh, I don't know, coconut oil is great for you or coconut oil is bad for you. Most of these studies are done on like 20 people. They last for maybe three months. Um, and so what that means is that they're way too small. So, you know, the results just aren't really credible. And so what happens is people then do, you know, maybe 20 of these studies. They're all really small. And when you dig into it, you discover like 10 of these studies say coconut oil is great for you. And 10 of these studies say that coconut oil will kill you. Right. Which is why we read in the newspaper one thing one month and the other. And it's not because the nutritional scientists aren't good. They are good. But the point is the funding is so small you can't actually really get to the bottom of this. And I think that's important because, um, you know, as we talk about uh, your, your question around the, around the bacteria, it's, well, what do we really understand? So I think what we do understand um, is that the gut bacteria um, has, um, has a strong impact on the way that uh, we deal with blood fats. And actually one of the papers that we published in, in Nature Medicine um, that came out of these studies actually like looked at the impact of gut bacteria on both blood fat and blood sugar. And what it saw is there's a bigger impact on how we manage blood fat than blood sugar. So we don't know why, but there is a good um, hypothesis about this because um, you know if you think back to when you were at school and you remember like the picture of what goes on inside your gut, right? Like, so first of all, you get to the stomach, then you go through your uh, small intestine, right? Which is like this little tube that you go along for a long time. And finally you get to like, after a long, long time, you get to like this big sack at the bottom, right? Which is what we tend to talk about. We talk about the gut. That's where almost all the bacteria are. And it takes time to get there. Um, and if you think about, um, uh, you know, what we know about um, uh, eating like uh, most carbohydrates that are easy to get at. Like, so think about, again, you're drinking that sugary drink, like the Coca-Cola or you're like eating some rice or bread. Actually, you know what? Your body absorbs that really, really fast. So, you know, basically before it's got to your gut, all of that can be inside you. And I think you can be, sh I think many of your listeners will be shocked at just how fast you can get a blood sugar spike from, um, from a lot of foods, including foods that, you know, you might've thought of as healthy. You know, like, and I think rice is a, is a great example. Fats tend to take um, uh, longer, so they're going to travel further through um, um, uh, your body in order to be absorbed. So it, in, in terms of a direct impact, it makes sense that they're hitting the um, bacteria faster. This also helps to explain why it seems that the sort of fat you eat has a uh, bigger impact on your microbiome. So if you think about it, it works the other way around, right? Like depending upon the sort of foods you eat, you actually change the, uh, the bacteria that's inside you. And again, the sort of fats that you eat seem to have a very important uh, effect. This is why um, we think a lot of processed foods. One of the reasons processed food might be bad for you is not just because it's got lots of calories, right? Again, it's not just about calories, but if it's got like a lot of sort of things that you know nobody would normally eat, right? Like these are not natural products. It's very highly um, processed. There's all sorts of things, right? To stick the food together and, and make it work. Those are then going um, into your gut. And this is actually like, 
you know, it can be quite bad maybe for your best bacteria. And on the other hand, there'll be some other bacteria that like it, but that's not the sort of bacteria that you really want to have so much of. So um, this is why we think, you know, that the lipids in particular, the fats might, um, might be more important um, and more directly related even than blood sugar to, um, to your gut health. Now, when you say different types of fats, right? Are you referring to more, let's say, good versus bad, or are you talking long chain um, triglycerides versus medium chain triglycerides? So, firstly, you know, I'm the data scientist, so I, I, you know, I don't want to uh, overspeak um, um, uh, uh, my piece. I think what is interesting, though, if you go and talk to, so for example, um, uh, Dr. Sarah Berry is somebody we work with, with very uh, closely, and she's one of the leading um, lipid experts in, in the world. And I think what's interesting, whether you talk to her or many of the other leading nutritional scientists, is there's been a really big shift away from thinking about food as like saturated fat or unsaturated fat or carbohydrates and realizing that actually it's like the whole food is what's central. And this is part of this discovery that actually there are hundreds of thousands of chemicals inside our food, right? So getting focused on just one or two, like, you know, it doesn't make any sense, right? What about the other 99,999? but also that foods themselves can really change in their health properties depending upon um, what's happened to them. I think the great example of this is dairy. So if you look at dairy um, and you look at all the sort of long-term evidence, what you see is that um, milk isn't terrible, but it doesn't seem to be particularly good for you. But when you look at milk after it's been fermented by these bacteria and turned into yogurt, uh, or cheese, for example, actually it looks like it's much more beneficial and the quality of that fat has got much better. And that's because it's been changed, right? At like literally this microscopic level by all these bacteria as part of that um, fermentation process. And therefore, when we look at sort of the quality of fat, you know, originally I thought it was going to be sort of what you're saying is like, is it saturated or unsaturated, right? Everything that sort of I had understood uh, and that, you know, you still see on the, on the label on the back, but actually, really, um, these scientists don't believe in this anymore. The question is really, what's the quality? Uh, what is that underlying food? What's the quality of that? Uh, and that therefore you can, for example, think about like, what's the right oils to cook with? And just saying, oh, well, I, I want to avoid saturated or unsaturated isn't right. You really need to understand, you know, this huge complexity where, you know, something like an olive oil, again, has so many different chemicals and polyphenols in it. And it's that combination of all of those things, you know, probably with your gut bacteria, right, which is then giving you this positive health impact. You went exactly where I was hoping you were going to go with this. So because <laughs> I really wanted my audience to hear that. Thank you so much for that share. That's welcome. fantastic. That's one of my gripes with processed foods. And I'm going to caveat by saying, I'm not saying I don't eat anything processed. If I don't, if I say I don't, I'm a liar. But and I would everything say- everything is a bit processed, right? Exactly. It's very minimal in my diet, however. Which is um, Like, for example, I eat fruits. So those are my, uh, the carbs that I tend to like more, right? But when we talk about processed foods and we look at all the things that, it, that man puts together, the high protein- the high fat, the high carbs, the natural flavors that can come from a beaver's butt, all these other <laughs> things, right? You know what I'm talking about. All, know, yeah. all these things that goes into the high sodium, et cetera, our bodies have a tough time breaking down all those at the same time. And that's the perfect example of what we talk about, the whole food, why the whole food matters. Now you take a food in nature, you take a mango, for example. Yeah, it might be high in sugars, but it does have some fiber, not a lot of fat. But if you eat an avocado, maybe high in saturated fat, but not a lot of carbs, not a lot of protein. Nuts, kind of on the edge a little bit, but still not as much as processed foods. It does have a lot of fiber, which slows down the digestion of the uh, of the carbs that are in it, right? So, and we are, you know, I mean, we're really positive about nuts. I think that's a great example, which may surprise you a bit, Nerado, but because I think they've been like, well, they're like incredibly high in calories. You know, that must be terrible. They got all this fat, right? And we were told a few years ago, fat is terrible. You know, interestingly, um, we see fantastic quality out of it. Um, and again, that's coming down to 
the it's completely uh, natural. It's very high in uh, fiber. We see very strong correlation between um, people, uh, and we can you can we can actually get this down now to individual nuts, like the link between these nuts and these good bacteria. Um, and so actually, it's a, it's a great example actually of a food um, that you know I shifted from I, you know I ate none in my diet five years ago, and now that's basically my go-to uh, snack. Um, because actually it's, you know, it's great for me. And it's a, it's a great example versus something that is processed and you might think is good for you, but actually, you know, it's taking away all of that complexity. Um, you know, we, we look a lot at polyphenols, which are basically sort of these defense chemicals, um, which, which um, you know, people also talk about historically as sort of antioxidants. And so again, when you're looking at um, fruit, you know, I eat uh, a lot of fruits that are high in those polyphenols. So like blueberries, blackberries um, are, are really go-to and they're full of sugar. Right. So again, it sounds like it should be terrible, but actually they're full of these polyphenols. They're full of fiber. They're, they're really feeding the good bacteria and that helps to balance out, you know, the sugar. But, you know, I, I eat them whole. I don't smash them up to make a smoothie because at that point I know I'm destroying, you know, a lot of the fiber. Um, and then, you know, I, I think it's much harder to justify that to, to myself. They taste good. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I, so I think in general, like the more that you can eat these things, um, in as a whole food rather than something where it's been like really broken down. Um, I think that's one of the things we see really clearly. And I think what you'll see over the next few years is just more and more understanding that very processed food, it's not just because it's like high in sugar or not just because it's high in fat. Actually, the whole processing is making this to be something that, you know, our bodies weren't evolved to deal with, right? There's nothing like that in nature, none of our ancestors ever ate anything like that until the last 100 years. It's not by chance that suddenly, you know, we have all this explosion of of heart disease, of diabetes, of uh, metabolic disease. Uh, and it's not just because we're not running everywhere, because you know what, the car's been around a really long time, you know, like, I think nobody can make that excuse anymore. Like, my parents drove all the time. Honestly, my grandparents drove all the time. How come like all of these metabolic diseases are so much bigger now than 50 years ago? It's not because we're not doing enough exercise. Of course, we should all do more exercise, but that's not the truth. The truth, I think, is you've got to focus on the food. I have a, and thank you for clarifying the thing on nuts too, because that's huge. That's really awesome. And it, that, that good fiber that our good bacteria needs, game changer, right? I'm, I'm I have a, you the permission to go out and eat those nuts. <laughs> that's right. I actually have our uh, pistachios and, uh, and almonds in my in my account in my cupboard right now. They, there, there you go. And of course, you know these things are personal. We do do these tests. There are some people whose um, you know, whose fat control is really poor, and that doesn't mean that they can't eat nuts, but they do need to be conscious of the amount of quantity that they eat. But in general, like most of us, um, this is, this is a great place to go. Nuts have been a staple in me turning my health around. It really exactly. has been a staple. It's been a staple for me. In fact, for a while, because I intermittent fast and I would start my day with some type of nuts, almonds, pistachios, walnuts, or if I have, let's say my Greek yogurt, I'll put some pecans or walnuts because I can't seem to eat those by themselves. They're disgusting to me. <laughs> so I mix them in my Greek yogurt. Um, and it's been a staple in my diet. But I want to bring up something, though. And I want to caveat by saying I'm not bastardizing the U.S. or any Western country or large countries, but I was born and raised in Jamaica. And growing up, we didn't have many diseases or well-known diseases, right? It's, if you were to get a disease it's in later on in your life, you're diabetic, you're 60, 70, 80 years old, not 20 or 30, so on and so forth. And it's been a shift since I've left. I've been gone over 20 years. And our diet has become greatly westernized. And we're importing foods and people will forego the food in Jamaica. I don't want fruits. I don't want vegetables. They want to go buy expensive stuff that costs three times more. So many diseases have gone up. My cousin about to graduate from medical school, and she tells me all the time the things that she sees now. It's insane. I have other uh, medical experts in my family tell me the changes over the last 20 years or so since the shift has happened for what we have into what we're eating now. So that goes to show. Now, that's anecdotal. I, don't, I can't say that's 100% the reason. However, that's a big shift, and we can see the results right after that as well. 
and there is some real data around um, gut bacteria across this. So um, um, one of the scientists that uh, we work with, um, a guy called Professor Nicholas Segata, uh, who's actually in Italy, um, is uh, the person who, who basically does the most sequencing, it's called, of these um, gut bacteria. So understanding you know, all the bacteria inside your gut. Um, and what they've done is they've looked at this across many different countries in the world. And that includes sort of, you know, developed countries like the U.S. or Europe, um, but also looking at um, uh, people who are still living uh, something very close to sort of hunter-gatherer lifestyles. So that includes sort of in East Africa, like the Hadza. It also includes uh, tribes living in sort of the Amazon uh, as well. And what's amazing about this is what you find is when you go and look at their bacteria, the diversity uh, of bacteria in uh, in their gut can be twice or three times like the best that you would see in like the US or in Europe. So basically there are there are all these bacteria in fact that are basically uh, extinct in the US, right? Nobody has it. And yet when you go and look at these people either in those like really hunter gatherer or also if you go and look in countries that are still not um, not very developed and not eating Western diets, where maybe 70, 80, 90% of people have it. So the, you know, the, the bacteria that we have, um, which is really, you know, driven by the food we eat and also things to do with cleanliness and antibiotics as well, those are very important, are profoundly different. Um, and the most amazing thing he did is he sequenced this uh, DNA from um, from somebody called the Iceman. I don't know if this has ever come up on, on your podcast, but they found uh, a, um, uh, a mummified body in the Alps on the, on the border between Italy um, and uh, Austria, uh, which was 10,000 years old. And because it had been in the ice, it was so well preserved, they were able to sequence the bacteria uh, inside his gut and even see the food that he'd eaten, which is amazing. And when they sequenced his gut, they found exactly the same thing they find in um, in these people living a more, um, you know, sort of traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle, which is lots of bacteria that don't exist anymore in, uh, in the US or in Europe, same sort of bacteria that you actually see uh, in groups like these, um, these people in East Africa, and many more bacteria than we see today. So again, like this amazing ability to go back in time, right? 10,000 years and understand well you know reasonable to assume this is why what all human beings uh were like and so recognizing that today you know our our gut health is a pretty sad thing right like our bacteria is somehow really shrunken um compared to what we're used to what we're supposed to have and you know once you realize that i think it all starts to make sense right our gut bacteria is much worse. You know, the food we eat, there's no fiber, which means we're not supporting them and giving them the good stuff. Like, you know, why are we surprised that you would then have all of these health issues afterwards? And I think this is like an amazing new discovery. And, you know, I, the main thing that my kids know is, you know, when I'm pushing them to eat well, it's always about like, you should be eating for your gut bacteria. And so they hear that all day long. They're like, dad, stop talking about the gut microbiome, but it's because it's important. <laughs> This is what I do for a living, children. <laughs> and, you know, just want to add quickly to that, the lack of diversity that you mentioned, because we tend to eat the same things all the time. Like, you know, I like burritos, not me personally, but someone may say, I like burritos. They eat a burrito for breakfast every day, right? Or right. but they may say, I don't like fruits. I don't like vegetables, right? So you, because you're not feeding your gut what it needs, you're not getting the right probiotics, the right back, good bacteria that your body needs, which creates a lack of diversity. It's like a rainforest with like two trees instead of you know a multitude of trees that really make up that rainforest and then you take the, the antibacterial um that basically destroys the entire rainforest for the most part right and it's not repopulated properly and i've had many health experts that explain that on my show so thanks so much for bringing that up I, I before you go, I want to ask you a couple more things. Um, I'm going to caveat by saying everyone knows I'm Jamaican. So sometimes I struggle to say English words, even though <laughs> <laughs> I think it seems but, all right to me. I think you're OK. <laughs> I try, but this one of the words it's like cucumber. I can't say cucumber. People make fun of me because they say it's a cucumber or something like that. I can't say that word. Right. Anyway, moving on a little bit. I want to talk about non-communicable diseases. That's the word that I tend to struggle with sometimes. And how are they connected to obesity and longevity? So um, 
That's a great question. Um, and, and the answer is they're really tightly linked, which is why we have seen this really big rise in obesity, which is just basically saying that, um, you know, that there's been a lot of weight gain for people today, which is higher than our, our parents and, and grandparents' generation. And then linked to that, these are the diseases that, um, uh, um, you know, most of us end up uh, suffering from. So, you know, diabetes, heart disease, you know, other metabolic diseases that come together. And the answer is they're very tightly linked. And I think if you start to think about this, you know, less um, as calories in and calories out behind weight gain and start to think about it more as like, well, what's going wrong? Why have you got these really high levels of inflammation? Why is your gut health really poor? Why um, we're having this food, which is just continually driving these bad impacts. Then actually you start to, to think about this, not like the weight has nothing to do with the, the health, but actually the weight and these diseases are both a product of this underlying problem. And so the, I think the good news about this, right, is if you can start to eat right for your body, then not only can you reduce the risk of these um, um, long-term diseases, but actually you have the opportunity to, to lose weight because suddenly you're working you know, with your body, right, instead of against it. And it's, it's much easier to work with your body than in the other way. And again, you said eating right for your body. That's something we can't just drive over. That's very important. Eating right for your body, understanding what your body actually needs. Now, is there anything, because we've covered so many wonderful topics and my audience is going to be blessed by everything that you brought us today, but you being the expert here, is there anything that you would like to add that I haven't asked or you think we should discuss? I think we've, it's been such fun as always, right? You know, there's so much more that you could talk about. Uh, I think I would say, you know, if you find these topics interesting, then uh, I think you might enjoy uh, the new pop podcast that we've launched. Uh, and the whole idea between uh, the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is, is to try and get a whole set of world-leading scientists in their different areas to actually talk about their research, explain it in ways that you know a regular person can understand and how that can actually have a direct impact on, on your health. And I think you know one of the things that really motivates me, why we wanted to do Zoe, was this idea, how can you how can you create this bridge, right, between what's going on with all of the science, where there are all these amazing men and women understanding really today, like what's the what are the facts? And then there's just all this pseudoscience out there. There is, as you rightly said, lots of big companies lobbying for for big food. And actually, how can we connect that and share with people um, the real facts? So I think if 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 any of your listeners have enjoyed today, and we talk a lot about gut health. Obviously, uh, we talk about nutrition and we talk about health more broadly. And what I really love about your work and also about your show is that you take you look at multiple sides of the spectrum. You look at the scientific study, which is huge, right? The scientific side is definitely huge. But you also look at ancestral living. In addition, you look at anecdotal evidence and you put those together, which is my my approach to everything with my clients and myself, because we have to understand all three. You can find science that says Honey Nut Cheerios is good for you, like you just said, right? Depending on whoever pays for it, right? Indeed. But you have to connect, you have to put all three together. And having someone who understands science as well as you and your team does, who can put that all together for us, that is game changing on a different level. Now, fun thing at the end, I just want to ask you here, uh, what's the what was what's the story behind Zoe in the name? I believe it's Greek, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. So um, uh, I uh, I don't know whether you spend a lot of time with with Greek people, Narada, but one of the things you'll discover is that um, they always think that like the Greek word for something must be the best word. So my co-founder, George, who is fantastic, is Greek. And when we were talking about uh, the name of the company with him and Tim, he said, well, I, it has to be Zoe because Zoe means life in Greek. And it's a fantastic name, so we're very happy. But it's definitely true that like it was a Greek name is a plus. So Zoe means life in Greek. And, and the reason why we loved it so much is um, the whole point of this conversation around 
nutrition and health is to live a great life, right? And Zoe is all about, not about exclusion. Um, we don't believe there's anything you should never eat. The point is, how do you understand how to approach this, have joy and have, you know, a joyful life? And if you can understand your, um, your body, understand how to support your health, then actually, how do you make sure, you know, you have the most years of that? And so, uh, so I actually thought Zoe was a, was a beautiful name um, that we're very happy with. It is fantastic. It's fantastic, my friend. Um, how can my audience get in touch with you, by the way? So, um, uh, as I've said, one way is just to follow on any, uh, whatever the podcast that you're using right now to listen to this podcast, uh, follow Zoe Science and Nutrition. And if you want to understand more about the, the company, then just go to join Zoe, J-O-I-N-Z-O-E dot com forward slash podcast. Thank you for saying Z. We say Z in Jamaica as well. So you just brought me back. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Jonathan. This is a fantastic show. My audience is definitely going to benefit from it. We want to, I want to have you on the show in the future as well to talk a little bit more about these topics. And as we learn more, like you said, there's a, so much that is unexplored that we need, that we're going to learn as we continue into digging, digging deeper and deeper. So and, thank and you so love much. I'd love to do that. Thank you so much for having me, Narada. You're welcome. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Zico Hell Show. If you got good quality content out of this or any of my episodes, save, subscribe, and share it with family, friends, co-workers, or anyone who needs this information. Remember, always take the scenic route and enjoy the